Take your Bibles and open to 1 John this morning. 1 John chapter 3 is our continuing in our study and our series of the letter of the Apostle John called 1 John, shorter than the Gospel of John that we're familiar with. 1 John, the series without a doubt. John's purpose in writing this letter was to give assurance, to give confidence to believers of their faith in Christ. Last week I used a a quote that I'm going to reuse this morning. Uh, We looked at verse 1 of chapter 3 last week, but we're going to look in verses 1 through 10. But I want you to look on the screen this quote from J.I. Packer, who went to be with the Lord in the past couple of years uh, in his most well-known book called Knowing God, uh, writes, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers, And their whole outlook of life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. This is is so basic, and we have to remind ourselves. And in 1 John uh, chapter 3, that's how it begins. And as I said last week, we looked at uh, verse 1 specifically. We unpacked verse 1 where uh, John writes about being a child of God where he says, what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. We looked at that in uh, some detail. And that has to do with the identity of the believer, who our identity is. Identity is very important for us. You know, there's now a whole cottage industry of finding your identity. Uh, How many of you have ever uh, gone on, or maybe you are, on Ancestry.com? Okay, uh, I think I did like they gave you, I mean, years ago they did like a trial period, and I think I mined as many dead relatives as I could in the 48 hours that they gave me or whatever. Um, but now, you know, you can have one of the, the DNA tests, and it'll send you this graph. How many of you have done that? How many of you have done that? All right. And I think that would be interesting. Uh, but identity, you know, who we are and why I'm here, all those things, those are things that certainly in growing up we, we struggle with and even into adulthood is what is my identity? Well, the Bible, to very simply uh, stated, identifies believers. Remember, 1 John is written to Christians, different than the Gospel of John where he wrote that to unbelievers as a, as a testimony, defending, uh, showing who Jesus Christ is. But 1 John, he is writing as an encouragement to believers, and this identity is not in what other people will label you. You know, the culture wants to label everybody about something. You're this, you're that, you're that, this identity, uh, you're in this category. And for the Christian, we need to be reminded, it doesn't matter what my label said about what I was, it's what my label says of who I am now and what God's label on my life is. He says that I belong to him. I'm a child of God. I'm his. And that's what we need to be reminded of, and I think that's what John is wanting to remind uh, us and his readers uh, in this First John letter. So this morning, the title of the message of this morning is living out who we are. If we are God's children a child of God, verse 1, 1 John 3, then how do we live that out? How do we put some shoe leather on this wonderful truth of the believer's identity of a child of God? How, does this, how do we practically walk this out? Is that kind of just a nice thought? Put it on a coffee mug, put it on a little poster in your office. But how, how, should, this, how should the Christian live out this truth, okay? And that's what we want to we look at this morning. So I hope that you have your Bibles uh, in whatever fashion you have them before you, electronically or uh, 
paper or whatever and possibly even uh, ready to make a note or two. This is a time, as I say so many times, that this is a time uh, that is an opportunity, opportunity for you to grow in the Word. And so take advantage. I've done, the, I've done the hard work for you. I've done the heavy lifting. So listen and take a note because as you, as you grow, you can't grow unless you're a student of the Word of God. And if you have a struggle in reading and studying the Word of God, well, listen, you're going to be here and you might as well take advantage of it. And perhaps God may show us and teach you something from His Word that when you go back and read it, you're like, oh, okay, now I understand what that means. So make use of the opportunity you have here. And this morning, I want us to look at four principles as we unpack verses 1 through 10. And I've kind of limited it to some degree for these verses as uh, we could, there certainly is a lot of, lot of things here that we could unpack and look at. But this morning, I want you to look with me at four principles from the Word of God uh, that'll hopefully give us some practicality in living out who we are. And the first principle that the Christian must know is this, is we must know to whom we belong, okay? We, we, we dealt with that last week, and I just want to make a few comments, but look with me in verses 1 through 3, the Christian must know to whom we belong. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, in Christ, purifies himself as He is pure." We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to kind of underline and emphasize a couple of things I didn't say last week around the, the sense that, uh, that one of the things that we must know is that we belong to Him. That's what the Word of God and John is wanting to drill home to his readers, his listeners that would hear this, is that you belong to Him. You belong. You're part of God's family. Now, this didn't just, we don't just, we're just not a part of God's family naturally. There's something that, that happened, and uh, uh, you may be familiar that sometimes what is called the golden chain of redemption, of how God saves us, and beginning with election, that He chose us by His grace, Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world. So God has chosen us, elected us. There is regeneration that precedes faith. We can't have faith unless God awakens our dead hearts, okay? We cannot see because we are blinded because we are dead in sin, the Bible says. So election, regeneration, then regeneration gives us new spiritual life, and then justification. That is God's uh, legal act that puts us in right standing before Him, that we have been justified by God. But there's another part of this golden chain of redemption that's important, and that is, the, that is what we uh, in biblically refer to as adoption, as adoption. Uh, adoption, by adoption, God makes us members of His family. We did not pre-exist as members of His family, but we have been adopted by Him. Adoption, Wayne Grudem, in his... Uh, in his uh, Systematic theology says it very simply, adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members or a part of his family, okay? So that's what it is. Now, many of you have uh, adopted children. You yourselves have been adopted. So adoption as an analogy is, is somewhat familiar to us because it's, uh, it's a rare case when any uh, story of adoption doesn't warm our heart and touch us. Uh, want to be parents, eager to love and care for a child, uh, spend thousands of dollars uh, on the on this child that the child can never repay them. They fill out endless stacks of paperwork, uh, incur significant expenses, oftentimes travel thousands of miles. Uh, to welcome this new little boy 
or a little girl into their family. Adoption, we, we get that. That's a great picture, isn't it? And uh, after months and sometimes years of preparation, everything in that, in that one moment, when it all comes down to that moment, uh, when the judge legally declares that this child is legally now a part of your family, and that child has all the rights, legally, legal rights and privileges of being a member of your earthly family. Uh, you know, in many cases, if the child was not adopted, the child would face certain, uh, you know, tragedy or neglect, or whether it be in an orphanage or abusive uh, situation, uh, the outcome, if they weren't, if there was not an intervention by the loving parents to rescue that child, the child would have certainly had a a questionable future, but because of the intervention, that child is now welcomed into a loving home and a loving family. So that's a beautiful picture that the New Testament builds on to show us that how God's adoption is like that human adoption, certainly much more, but it's a great picture. So, so just as you could say in one sense that we were spiritual orphans, Biblically speaking, we were spiritual orphans under the cruel oppression of sin and Satan. That's the picture of what the Word of God says. By nature, Ephesians 2, 3 says that by nature, we were children of wrath. Outside of God's intervention, by nature, we were born as children of wrath, children or sons of disobedience. Uh, Jesus even said something even more radical in John eight forty four that we were actually children of the devil himself. Our only home was a sin-cursed world that is fast-pacing away. Our only guardian was our enemy of our souls, the devil himself. Our only future was the expectation of God's wrath and judgment. But God, but God intervened and adopted us. Look at some familiar scriptures just to briefly uh, round this out. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 says, Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose you before you could do anything to deserve it or earn it, which you could never do, but he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for what? Adoption. You see that? Adoption to himself as sons, as daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to. Why did he choose me? Why did he choose you as a child of God? because it pleased him to do so. There's no other reason. There's no other reason. Romans 8, 14 through 15, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but look at this, but you have received, this is present tense, you have received the spirit of what? adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. On Wednesday night, this past Wednesday, we unpacked in our study about the Lord's Prayer about our, our Father and what that means. And that Abba, we, we oftentimes tie it to our common word, Daddy, but uh, it, it might, you know, it's very similar to that. In other words, the point is, is that now we have been taken from estrangement as orphans and have been given all the legal rights and privileges as sons and daughters of the Most High, and not just to sit and take, but to sit at the king's table. Like, you remember when old Mephibosheth, remember that story? I preached on that. You've heard of that story? That when Mephibosheth, who was the estranged uh, son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, and one day David, at the height of his kingdom, said, is there anybody left in the house of Saul that I may bless? 
And they said, well, there might, I think there's one of his grandkids living in Lodibar, which was a desolate place as far away. And David sent his messengers to go get Mephibosheth. And because of covenant, Mephibosheth was given the right to sit at the king's table. Remember Mephibosheth? It says he was lame in his feet because as a young baby, as a child, that when they were escaping, when David came to power, and the house of Saul was fleeing out of fear of what David might do, his nursemaid dropped him. And from that time, he was lame and and was a crippled individual. And he was brought in to the king's palace. And the Bible says in that wonderful story that he sat and ate at the king's table his entire life. Why? Because of a covenant made that was beyond him. When him, but because of a covenant made beyond him, the king brought him in. The king brought us in by grace. We couldn't get there on our own, people. The king brought us in. And he brought us in not to be slaves or servants, but he brought us in where we could sit and eat at the king's table for the rest of our life. We've been given rights and privileges because of the wonder of adoption. Now look at secondly... The second principle that the Christian must know is not only to whom we belong, but also what we are to avoid. Not only to whom we belong, but to what we are to avoid. As children of God, family members who belong to Him, and because of the redemptive purposes of God in Christ, through the blood of Christ, We are now his family, we are his children, and there are things that the believer is to avoid. And to simply put, John says, here's what you are to avoid. Avoid sin. Avoid sin. Real profound, isn't it? Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Against law. Verse 5, you know that he appeared, Jesus, in order to take away sins. And in him and in Christ there is no sin. No one who abides in him, who claims to be in Christ, keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, verse 4, again, says that sin is lawlessness. That it means that uh, to sin is a violation of God's law or His Word, His known will. To sin is going against what God clearly says, thou shall not. Lawlessness says, thou will. That's sin. And John says that anyone who practices sinning is practicing lawlessness. The psalmist says in Psalm 119 many times, the longest psalm of, the, of, of, of all the psalms, the longest chapter of the Bible, if you could say it that way, speaks about how I love thy law. Now, we think of law, we're thinking about, you know, local, uh, you know, uh, rules and regulations, but law is just, again, another way of saying, God, your word, your revealed word. God, I love your law. Law, The law of God was reflecting of the holiness of God. And so to violate God's law, to be a person of lawlessness, is to be in rebellion against the lawgiver, the word giver. And so the Christian lives out their identity as a child of God by avoiding sin in their life. We're talking about How do we live this out? If this is who it says we are, how do we live this out? We live it out by avoiding sin in our life. Now, I know you guys are really sharp. I can just tell in your faces, even through the masks. And you might think, well, wait a minute. That seems to contradict when he says that that anyone who practices sin is not of God, that seems to contradict uh, 
what John would write back in 1 John. Remember what he wrote back in 1 John and verses 8 through 10? He says, if we uh, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, wait a minute. It seems like he might be saying two different things. He's saying, on the one hand, if you sin, you're not of God. But at the same time, in chapter 1, it seems that he made provision that when you do sin, you have forgiveness. Which is it? Well, look. Look at the passage. Look at verses 4 through 9. Notice how many times the phrase, and I'm reading from the ESV, the phrase says, practice sinning, keep on sinning, uh, who do not practice righteousness. Look at this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning and also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Let Little children, let no one deceive you. Look down at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So this second principle that to live out our identity of who we are, there are things to avoid. What is he saying here? He's saying that, that this person that he's identifying here is a person who keeps on, who shows that someone has a sinful demeanor in their life. It's a habitual, continual life and pattern that is lawless. That is, that is they say one thing, they say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, but their life is on a continuum that is outside of the Word of God. Their lifestyle shows that what they profess, they do not possess. And so John says that that person doesn't know God, regardless of what they say. Because their life is showing the reality of an unchanged heart. Remember verse 6 back in chapter 1? He says, if we say, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we say one thing while we are openly, habitually practicing willful sin, it says that we lie and we do not practice the truth. Verse 8, chapter 1, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, just think about this. When we, when a believer is born again, new life is birthed within us, Right? New life, the new life of the new life or nature that we are born of God. John 3. You must be born again. There's a new life. And this new life that is birthed within us, this new life does not have a propensity or demeanor to habitually run and, and operate in a sinful life because that is incompatible with the new life that has been given to us in Christ. As Christians, as Christians, we have a growing propensity to avoid sin, to have a hatred for sin. We should. That should be growing, and at times, there should be a growth. Our disposition now as believers is that we are continually in a mode of fighting and resisting 
sin. That's why Paul could say in Ephesians chapter 6, 10, to put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you may avoid the schemes of the devil to do what? To sin. To be a person who is against God's law. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to operate and walk in lawlessness. That's what he's always pushing against us. But see, the difference now, according to Romans 6 and 7, is that as through the death of Christ, that we are in Christ who has died, our life is in him, because of the death of Christ and that we have died in Christ, we have been freed. We sung about freedom. Are we free? Or we just like the tune? We are free from sin, Romans 7, 7. Romans 7, 12 says, even though we've been free from sin, Paul says in a few verses later, do not let sin have dominion, have a reign, a rulership in your bodies. A few verses later, he says, sin will not have dominion over you. You are now under grace. So John, to put this together, back in what he's saying that does not contradict what he says in chapter 1 with what he says in chapter 3, is that sin is still active in the believer, but it no longer has control over our life. Why? Because We have new life. We have been born again. You see, this false idea that the Christian has two natures. He's got this sinful nature and this new life in Christ nature, and they're like two dogs fighting each other. That's not a biblical picture. We have one life. We have new life in Christ. We have Christ in us. That's the only life we have, okay? And this new life, while it is yet, and and we'll look at this in a moment, It is yet still in this earth, walking this dirt, still doing battle, still fighting evil, still resisting against sin. Sin is still active, but it does not have dominion over it. So John is saying that the normal disposition of a child of God is characterized by obedience and not habitual practice of sin. Tom Brady is, without much debate, the greatest quarterback that has ever played the game. Without, I don't think anybody will debate that. Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback who's ever played the game, right? Brady is a professional football player who is a master of his quarterback position. He knows what his responsibilities are. He knows how to carry out his assignments, right? Right? Okay? All right. Normally, normally, he performs those tasks with great precision. But occasionally, occasionally, he will throw an interception. He'll fumble maybe a bad spike. Something will happen. But here's the point. Even though he may occasionally do that, the norm is what? Precision. The norm for the Christian is precision in us walking in godliness. That's the norm, according to what the Word of God says. The exception is that we do fall, we do fail, we blow it, we sin. 1 John 1, 9, if you sin, confess, right? Confess. Before I was a believer, I sinned, enjoyed sinning, cut out coupons to sin cheaper. Never bothered me. But now... If I say something where I'm short or curt with somebody and I don't feel I've 
the, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. I say, hey, you know, Tim, hey, I'm sorry, I was a little short on that. No, okay, no problem, all right? But the conviction of the Spirit now won't let me continue. Hello? You know how what happens is when you go and you're going to pray and read your Bible. The Lord says, uh-uh-uh. We got work to do before we do this. There's things you got you to gotta get right before me, right? I'm not going to play your religious games, Tim. You deal with me, you're dealing in reality. You're dealing in transparency. You might fake it with your friends, but when you get before the Lord, you can't fake it, right? He deals with reality. Why? Not as, not as um, judge, but he is operating in a relationship because he's our father and I'm his son. Sin is the exception and not the rule. And according to what John said back in verse 6, that if sin is the norm, then the Bible says in verse 6 of 1 John 3, that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning, if that person keeps on sinning, it basically shows that they've really never known Christ. Regardless of what they say or their membership or their office in a church, that doesn't matter. You know, we've, you've been in church long enough, you know, there's a lot of fooling that people do with each other. Matthew 7 speaks about those that will even appear before Christ and say, Lord, Lord, don't you know me? I prophesied, I cast out demons, I took two Sundays in the nursery. Don't you know me? I've been serving you, Jesus. And Jesus said, on that day I will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. There was no relationship. The Bible says that 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a what? Is a new, say it, creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We need to know who we belong to, and we need to know what we are to avoid. And thirdly, the third principle that the Christian must know as a child of God is what we are to pursue. This is underlying everything that John is saying in this passage. Verse 6, he says, no one who abides in him. That word abides in him. Even though he says it negatively, that there is an abiding in him. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Talking about that new life. Because they've been born of God, verse 10, or verse 9, verse 10. It says, uh, by this it is evident we are children of God, and who are the children of devil, whoever does not practice righteousness. So even though he's saying it negatively, positively, he's saying that the person who practices righteousness is born of God. That's the evidence. That's the evidence of the believer. So what are we to pursue? The flow is that we avoid sin... And you know how we avoid sin? Because we avoid sin because we are too busy pursuing Christ. You are a tough crowd today. Were they tough on you in worship? Did they sit on y'all in worship? Because they're sitting on me now. You know what happens? I'll preach longer. So a little smile, little amen, you know, whatever. I'm just teasing. Yeah, I know. Oh, don't blame it on the mask, Penny. Get Pentecostal. Wave your hands. I'm just playing with you. You see, I remember Jim Simbla said this. And now I'm, I should have written it down. So let me make sure I get it right. Sometimes, he said, the problem in the church is we're so focused in getting sin out of people instead of leading people out of sin. Do you see where the focus differs? We become so sin conscious, that's all we focus on. You think, who can ever 
attain that. I mean, that's just, instead of realizing that like God does, He leads people out of sin. How does He lead us? Because the life that God has given to us in Christ, we pursue Him. We're abiding in Him. It's interesting John used that word abide because I'm pretty sure he heard a lesson Jesus gave about abiding. Remember this? It should be on the screen, John 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes and it may, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide or remain or stay in me and I in you as the branch, giving us the picture of the tree and the branch. We are the branch. We cannot bear fruit by itself unless it is connected, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7, if, notice the condition, if, if. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, notice the connection of the words of Christ abiding in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, by this abiding and my Father uh, operating in a way to supply your needs, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so what? Prove, prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, his laws, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see, it is a contradiction. It is a contradiction for someone to profess that they are pursuing Christ Jesus while pursuing lawlessness or sin at the same time. And one of the things that has, has, has poisoned the American church is the idea of this, this easy believism that we find the lowest common denominator to believe in and everything else really doesn't matter. And how a person lives their life is somehow secondary what they profess with their mouth. And there's times in which, you know, sometimes it gets off into talking about the lordship of Christ or non-lordship of Christ, and that's not what I'm debating per se. But Jesus, the, the Bible does not know a person who professes Christ and their life does not evidence the new life of what they profess or they claim. You see, what you avoid, and we're talking about avoiding, what you avoid, listen carefully, what you avoid and what you pursue will reveal much about your walk with Christ. I'm not talking about perfectionism. I'm not talking about that. That's, I'm not talking about being perfect. Only one is perfect, Christ. And we think John balances that out. But here's, here's how I'll finish this. There must, there is for the Christian to be marked as a child of God, that there should be an evidence in their life of what they pursue. There should be a trajectory in your life, in my life, that we are living a, and desire to live a godly life, 
to obey the will of God, to obey the revealed word of God, which is his will, and to avoid sin whenever and wherever possible. And if that is not true in an honest evaluation of your life, then I would beg of you, maybe you are not a believer. You're not a Christian. I don't care if you were baptized at eight years old at Shot in the Arm Baptist Church camp meeting in South Carolina, and some preacher handed you a card and said, you're saved and don't ever doubt it. And you've lived your whole life just clinging to that little decision card. Jesus says you will know a tree, the health of a tree. You'll know the, health, the tree by its what? By its fruit. Fruit is the evidence of a healthy root system. You will know the health of the believer by the fruit, using that analogy, of their life. And if the fruit of your life is anger, resentment, lust, bitterness... then something is wrong with the root. And John, the apostle, the word of God, and I say to you today, do not fall in for a false conversion. Don't fall in for a false assurance of something that is eternal. You see, this passion to pursue Christ, I love what Paul said. Remember what he said in Philippians 3? He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but what does he say? But I press on to make it my own. You're like, I don't know about you, but I think Paul kind of had it down, right? I, I wouldn't think he would need to say, yeah. No, he says, and by the way, you remember where he writes Philippians Remember where he writes this letter to the church at Philippi? He's in kind of a quarantine called jail. Yeah. And what's he saying? I'm pressing on. He's not saying, oh, poor me. I can't leave. I can't do anything. What does he say? No, 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 no. This jail is not going to define my pursuit. This quarantine is not going to define my pursuit. He says, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing I do, what does he say? Forgetting what lies behind. And if you know anything about Paul's life, he had a lot, thank God, he wanted to forget. He says, I forgot what lies behind me. And look at the words here, straining forward. Is that passive Christianity where just like, you know, I do it if I feel like it. No, you know what? You're straining. Like, oh, we're not works. Yeah, we're not works. But let me tell you, the Christian life is work. Works didn't get you in the kingdom and works won't keep you in the kingdom, but when you're in the kingdom, I like something my son tells his employees. You got time to lean, you got time to clean. I wish that had been true in his life when he was a teenager, but somehow it has been an epiphany as an adult. But he tells his employees, you got time to lean, you got time to clean. There's no leaning in the kingdom. We need to be about our father's business. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Instead of this lazy, mediocre, washed down Christianity that we all just kind of slide and slide out of. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of that in my own life. For the Christian to live out who they are in Christ, we've got to know who we belong to. We've got to know what we are to avoid. We need to know what we are to pursue. But fourthly, I love this. A Christian must know what we will become. And I kind of did this a little bit in reverse. Look back at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And look at this. 
and what we will be. Ha! I like that. That means I'm not all there is right now. I'm unfinished. What we shall be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, what will we become? We shall be like him. We shall be like him. John says, I'm not like him right now. You're not like him in the, in the fullness of that. But when he appears, there's coming a day in which it will, this is not all there is. There's coming a day that when he appears, that we shall be like him. I am not what I should be, but by his grace, I'm not what I used to be. And for the believer, you understand that salvation, yes, is a one-time event, but sometimes in, a, in a understanding the, pros, the, the picture of this, there's, a, there's an aspect in which I'm saved, I'm justified, I'm being saved, that's sanctification, I'm, I'm, I'm living out the gospel, I'm sanctified. But then there is a day, one day, and that's what John is referring to, in which I will be not justified, sanctified, but I will be, what? Glorified. See, when he talks about that we shall be like him, doesn't mean we're going to be like the second tri- person of the Godhead. We're not going to be Jesus, okay? But when it says we will be like him, we when in total fullness reflect the beauty and the holiness as a trophy of his grace. We will be like him. Let me just give you these three things of what that means. Number one, we will have glorified, resurrected bodies in heaven. We will have glorified, resurrected bodies in heaven. Do I understand what all that looks like? No, but that's just what the Word says. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3. Remember when he said, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, look at this who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. I want to be taller and thinner. I'm getting my request in. But you see, we'll have resurrected bodies that are going to be free from heart ailments, cancer, arthritis, chronic pain, all that plagues this physical body will be no more in a glorified body that will be fitted to be in the presence of Christ for all eternity. But there's a second part of this, is that not only will we have glorified, resurrected bodies, but we will have purified character. You see, we will be fitted for heaven. Why? Because God is holy. Heaven is a holy place. And if you are not holy, H-O-L-Y, you are not fit for heaven. Now, does that mean you need to work at getting holy in this life? Right? And there's a lot of people that try to figure out how to, how to do... Well, the only way you can be holy is to be in Christ. He, you know, in Christ. So we will be fitted for heaven and our character... And the sin nature that we, we do battle with here, we will battle no more. We will have a purified character. I like, um, and then thirdly, let me just go on. Thirdly, we will have a satisfied heart. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till we find rest in thee. Are you restless? I'm restless. You get bored? I get bored. You know, we do crazy things, right? You get bored, you get restless, you go out and buy some crazy thing, and next month it's just a car payment. We get restless. That's just sometimes just living in this in-between world we live in. But there should be a healthy restlessness for the believer 
where we're restless because we want to, we're going back to that pursuing. I want to know more of Christ. I love how Paul ends the last letter we have record of in 2 Timothy, the very, very end there. It's his last recorded record we have of his life. He's in Rome. We just, I mean, everybody's left him, abandoned him. He even had to ask, to ask Timothy to bring him his coat. Can't get a coat, can't get a, I mean, that's pretty bad, the Apostle Paul. But I love what he does. He says, and by the way, when you're bringing my coat, bring the parchments. In other words, bring, bring the books. Yeah, I may be near, near seeing my Savior, but some stuff I still want to read about. I still want to learn. I still want to grow in God. There is no cruise control when you hit a certain age. And we're just going to cruise into heaven because we just can't get beyond Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Great, wonderful, profound truth. Theologians have struggled and debated that. And profound truth. But let me tell you something. That is not all there is. There's more to God than just the little Sunday school poems we learn as kids. That's why he's given us his word. And so Psalm 17, 15, talking about this satisfied heart, says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, awake in heaven, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. For the Christian to live out who they are in Christ, Christians must know what we will become. We've got to know who we belong to, know what to avoid, what we are to pursue. And thank goodness there's a day in which we will be like him. I don't understand all that. I don't understand all that, like Peter, I had the scripture there, it talks about, We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay, 1 Peter 1.4. I don't understand all this inheritance. But I understand usually when you get an inheritance, it's a good thing. Just, I'm going to go with that. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to get the Father's inheritance. And why why would we get that? Because we belong to Him. I don't care what some parent, some teacher, some ex-spouse tagged you with some label that you're walking under the cloud of despair and rejection. Those things are real, and I'm not discounting any of that. But that does not hold any authority over my life What holds authority is what the Word of God says is that I am right now a child of God. I'm a child of God. Amen.